Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Linda Duska from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia, Dr. Robert Coleman from U.S. Oncology Research in the Woodlands, Texas, and Dr. Leslie Randall from the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. They will be answering questions posed during a recent live program on managing patients with endometrial or ovarian cancers based on the latest evidence. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled A New Era of Precision Medicine in Gynecologic Cancers. For more information on Dr. Duska, Dr. Coleman, and Dr. Randall, along with a link to the complete program, including downloadable slide sets, an expert commentary, and an on-demand webcast, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. I thought maybe I'd choose a couple of questions that span the things that we've been talking about. And to start off with an endometrial cancer uh, question, I'm going to ask my um, colleagues also this question. Um, For patients with endometrial cancer patients with MSI high tumors, would there be any characteristics that might move you to use lenvatinib with pembrolizumab or is the single agent immune checkpoint monotherapy always best? Um, for me personally, I, I'm not convinced that adding lenvatinib to pembrolizumab in the microsatellite high group is worth the added toxicity. So I would probably choose monotherapy, but I'm interested in what my co-presenters think about that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And although, you know, this week, um, I'll give you an example of where I, I broke my own rule is that I had, you know, an MSI high patient started on Pembro and, you know, she's really progressing and blowing through it. And I added lymvatinib because, um, you know, I, I, I just need a faster response. And so really to, it, you should respond within two cycles um, to the single agent checkpoint with the MSI high, you know, I don't know what the outcome is of that. I just, you know, tried that, but she's already, you know, having that additional toxicity. So yeah, I think definitely, I think when you see that MSI high, you're so glad that you don't have to (laughs) expose them to the additional toxicity of the lenvatinib if you don't have to. Right, right. And I think that, the, you know, I think that kind of points out, you know, this hyperprogression syndrome that we do see with some um, PDL1 inhibitor, PD1, PDL1 inhibitors in patients that we might have expected a response. So, um, yeah, I think, but I think that's reasonable. Yeah, I agree. Dr. Coleman, um, somebody, let's move to Ovary for a moment. Somebody has taken you up on your offer to discuss mm-hmm. your case with and without BEV options and what you would do for that patient. So I think we're talking about the neoadjuvant patient with the yeah. How would you right. manage that patient? Right. So I think that, you know, I, I think people forget that um, with, you know, with bevacizumab, much of the much of the adverse events that we see are actually during the initial induction. Once you get past that, that initial exposure risk, the, the adverse events are actually quite low. And I think the recent boost trial, which was looking at 30 months of, of treatment versus the standard 15 months, showed that that was the case. We had very few treatment discontinuations with extended therapy. So I'm of the impression that you know if you've made it through, um, and you can, and the patient's tolerant the medicine, I would continue it because you know the reason I started it was because I was trying to induce an objective response and trying to increase the proportion of patients that actually got to maintenance. Because remember, our trials 
you know, you, you weren't able to go on and study unless you actually responded to treatment or didn't progress by the time you finished chemo. So I'm always trying to maximize that piece of it. So I would have started her back up on Bev and, and then added because she was, she had a, a mutation. I would have added, you know, I, I did add the, um, the PARP inhibitor. The curious question was the patient who was the, were the situations where the Bev was not continued with the intent to use a PARP inhibitor or that the BEV was continued and then switched to a PARP inhibitor. And again, I think both of what my earlier comments would basically apply to that. Certainly if patients not tolerate BEV, that's, that's a different story. But if they're tolerating it, I would, I would, I would basically follow the PAL-1 regimen. Okay, um, and there's a question with respect to endometrial and ovarian cancer here. So can we talk about, is there a PFS or OS benefit in adding BEV to chemotherapy in, front, in the frontline setting in, let's start with ovarian cancer? Should so, everything get BEV up front, Dr. Coleman? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and get it for life, yeah. So I personally believe that, <laughs> um, yeah, my, I personally believe that, you know, ICON-7 and 218 did demonstrate in unrestricted patient population that that was beneficial. Uh, I don't I don't think there's such a thing as a low-risk advanced stage patient. Um, they have different prognostic factors, but I don't feel like they're clearly identified by that by that metric, and we never really formally tested that. In fact, we don't even got the same consistent results when we've looked at it across the study. So I believe that the first decision is BEV or no BEV. And you can make, there's all different ways to do that. So if you find a patient who's eligible for BEV, then yes, I give it. Um, and, and you know that, that's the way I approach it. Because that decision then gets made well before the, the PARP inhibitor decision. Okay, and thank you. And in the setting of endometrial cancer, because that was also raised, we do have some hypothesis generating randomized phase two trials, two of them to be exact, that suggest that adding bevacizumab to chemotherapy in the frontline setting in endometrial cancer would be beneficial to patients. But those data have not been confirmed in a randomized phase three trial. And, and so I, I don't think we have data to support using BEV upfront in endometrial cancer. I'd be interested in my colleagues' thoughts on that. I agree with you. I've used it in situations where you know, the patient's really motivated to try and escalate therapy. But I think now we just have so many better options in our trials with immune therapy. Um, you know, we have a trial looking at selenixor maintenance um, after chemotherapy. I think I, I tend to lean towards those options. Right. And, and you know, and remember in 86P, although we didn't have a control arm that didn't have BEV, all three of those arms essentially performed at, at the historical control rates. So uh, of, of no BEV. And that had BEV during, uh, you know, two different chemotherapy backbones um, and with BEV maintenance. Thank you very much, Dr. Duska, Dr. Coleman, and Dr. Randall. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, A New Era of Precision Medicine in Gynecologic Cancers, and to download the PDF associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.